Hi, Today Hi Church family. It's me, Kyra, and I'm just going to be doing the scripture reading for this week, which is Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and wants to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. Good morning and welcome to Trinity Heights virtual service. This morning we are beginning a new series in Paul's letter to the Galatians. But how do we connect with the letter written 2000 years ago in another language in a very different culture from our own? This is something we might ask really of any of Paul's letters, but especially so of Galatians. And the reason why I say this is because the main arguments of Galatians seem to have less to do with, say, the sort of more general moral issues, which we can all engage with at some level, or perhaps the rules for running the household in that day, which Paul often gives towards the end of his letters, some of which we might feel we can sort of really get behind. But the arguments in Galatians revolve instead around such culturally specific issues such as crucifixion, circumcision and covenants. Crucifixion, circumcision and covenants. So it may not be immediately obvious how this letter sort of intersects with our own lives. I'm convinced, of course, that the letter is, is very one long sort of cohesive argument, which Paul's first readers would have followed quite easily. But for us, who are not necessarily thinking in the same categories, this short letter would seem, well, it seems dense and, and difficult. Perhaps an easier way to connect with the letter initially is to pick up on the emotional tone of the letter itself. And this letter, of all Paul's letters, is shot through with emotion. Uh, look, we may be from a different culture and speak a different language, but the language of emotion crosses cultural barriers. You don't have to speak Chinese to know if someone is happy, or you don't have to speak French to tell if someone is actually very sad. So that's what I want to do, first of all, this morning, is just note a few things about Paul's emotional tone. And then I want to suggest how this emotional tone, far from being superfluous to the meaning of the letter, actually clues us into the very heart of Paul's concerns. The first thing we might notice is that there's a sense of urgency as Paul writes to the Galatians, which is unmatched in any of his other letters. Now, when we read Galatians, he, he starts out with the usual formal introduction, standard to, to the letters written at that time, uh, and standard to all, all of Paul's other letters. So Paul says, Paul, an apostle sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me. To the churches in Galatia, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, 
according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So far, so good. Just like all the other letters, really. All his letters begin with this sort of formal introduction. So we think, okay, everything's normal here. But then what usually happens in Paul's letters is that he starts to talk about his affection for the church and his thankfulness for the church. And then he follows that up with a fairly lengthy theological exposition. So it's sort of formal introduction, thankfulness, theological exposition. Formal introduction, thankfulness, theological exposition. And then only after all this, he'll directly address any specific issues going on in that particular church. Quite often the theological exposition uh, beforehand has already begun to address the issue at hand, but, it, but he doesn't necessarily name the issue directly. His usual strategy tends to be sort of, sort of to try and out, outflank his readers with his theological vision so that by the time he comes to confront the specific issues, they're already there with him, so to speak. So here's how Colossians begins, for example. Colossians chapter one, he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. Ephesians 1, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. You see that, that sort of theological exposition starting there. Philippians 1. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Even in 1 Corinthians, where we know there are all sorts of problems in that church, he says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him, you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. So there it is, formal introduction, followed by thankfulness for his readers, which is then followed by a lengthy theological exposition. But in Galatians, after his formal introduction, Paul skips thanksgiving, he skips the theological exposition, and he jumps straight into naming and calling out the issue at hand. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. So, so the pacing of this letter is all off, which tells us that this letter has a different sense of urgency about it. And mixed in with that urgency is also Paul's own sense of incredulity. He says, I'm astonished, he says. And in verse 11, he says, I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. In verse 19, he says, my dear children, 
for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. In chapter 4, verse 20, he says, I am perplexed about you. So, so just gather up this language, astonished, perplexed, fearful, and painful. And so out of this rather dark mood, Paul becomes very confrontational. So for example, in chapter two, Paul describes a, a personal encounter he had with another apostle. Actually, it's the apostle Peter, one of Christ's disciples. And he says, I opposed him to his face. We'll look at that in more detail in another message in the series, but, but look at what he's doing. By telling them about his confrontation with Peter, he's really confronting them. He's saying, look, I confronted Peter over this very issue. And in the next chapter, he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He calls them fools. And in chapter five, he says, mark my words. <laughs> Don't you love it when someone says to you, mark my words? It's almost a threat, isn't it? And in chapter five and verse 12, he really goes for it. While he's speaking about the troublemakers in the church who are insisting that every male needs to be circumcised. He says, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Paul is fully aware of how emotionally charged things have become. He's wearing it all on his sleeve. And so in the middle of the letter, in the midst of all the urgency, the fear, the pain, perplexed astonishment, that's all the language he's using. And, and all of this in-your-face confrontation, he sort of catches himself for a moment, and he says, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone. I, I love that in, in verse 20, chapter 4, verse 20, I love that he steps out of his writing for a second, and he acknowledges the limitation of a letter in the letter itself. He's sort of breaking the fourth wall, as it were, essentially saying that in-person interaction, of course, is far better. And if, if he was able to be with them physically, this problem might be solved more efficiently and, and, and with more flexibility. Yet given no other choice, he's willing to push the limits of their friendship. He's willing to risk being misunderstood for, by them. More than likely, the Galatians had received letters from Paul that preceded this one, letters that would have followed the, the more traditional format, making this letter, by contrast, all the more shocking and serious. And so as a result, the Galatians would have been shaken to the core. And so he asked them, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Okay. So now we have a sense of the emotional tone of this letter, which Paul wishes he could change. But why was Paul so emotional in the letter? What's getting at him? Well, as we've been saying, Paul jumps directly to the heart of the matter. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. 
as we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. The word gospel, which is literally translated good news or, or glad tidings, appears 12 times in this letter. Six of those occurrences are in the first chapter. And Paul says at the beginning that there are people who are inserting themselves into this congregation who are turning the Galatians away from the gospel. That's what this letter is about. Paul makes the issue front and center. Paul's emotion stems from the Galatians just abandoning the gospel for some other gospel, which Paul says is really no gospel at all. But this begs the question, what does Paul mean by the gospel? When he, when he uses that phrase, the gospel, what is he talking about? Well, as I've been trying to argue, I think the emotional tone of this letter is a clue. Thinking about Paul's emotion, you can sort of argue backwards from there and ask, why is Paul in such emotional turmoil when the Galatians turn away from the gospel? Or, or we can ask the question the other way around. What is it about the gospel that makes so much emotional sense to Paul that to turn from the gospel or to see his friends turn from the gospel is to create such emotional turmoil? Well, let's ask this. What causes the deepest emotional turmoil in your life or in my life? What causes the deepest emotional turmoil in our own lives? And what causes the deepest emotional turmoil collectively in our own cultural context? I think the deepest emotional turmoil usually comes from relational turmoil. Maybe it's caused by death, divorce, or hatred, but it all ends up in this sort of alienation, isolation, separation from each other. And this relational turmoil, whatever the cause is, whatever is causing the relational turmoil, creates the deepest, most profound emotional turmoil that we can experience. Think for a moment, if you will, of the tensions that we've felt across our society in the last year or so, especially. Perhaps divisions of place, those city people versus suburbia. Division of race, black and white. Political, Republican versus Democrat. Collective relational turmoil leads to a collective emotional turmoil. And so Paul's emotional turmoil has, I think, this deep relational dimension. And so I'll just highlight the relational dimension here, which we're going to be looking at in more detail in the coming weeks, but, but it's tied directly to Paul's understanding of the good news or, or the gospel. When Paul says gospel or good news, he is saying, first of all, good news. The one true God has acted in Jesus to free us from the false gods. The one true God is becoming king before whom all other kings must bow. So to turn away from the gospel is, as we shall see, 
to fall into a sort of pseudo-paganism. It is to turn away from God to false gods. It is the breaking of that relationship. Secondly, he's saying good news, the times are reaching their eschatological fulfillment and God is fulfilling his covenant. Eschatological what? Eschatological fulfillment. It's the theological jargon that says God has made a promise to creation and God is now keeping that promise. The engagement ring promises a wedding. And so to turn away from the gospel is to sort of, well, to not show up to the wedding. It is to reject the covenant, to reject the promise of God. It is again the breaking of relationship. And thirdly, when Paul uses the term gospel, he is saying good news, God is reconciling the broken, divided humanity to each other and to himself. Paul is emotional because to turn away from the gospel is to fall away into this sort of relational chaos. So if Paul is anything like you and I, you and me, perhaps Paul's emotional response to the situation in the church in Galatia is already a clue to the meaning the gospel held for him. It could be that Paul's own emotional response to the situation is precisely because he understands that in a world full of people alienated from each other, isolated from each other, separated from each other, the good news about Jesus offers us a way back to each other. It is the only hope for all of us collectively. And for Paul, this is not sort of a, a side benefit of the gospel, but one very essential, central aspect of its meaning, so that to abandon the gospel of Jesus Christ is to abandon each other, and to abandon each other is to abandon the gospel. Hence, the level of emotional turmoil in this letter, which we know from a personal experience, right, is the result of relational turmoil. So just from taking Paul's emotional tone seriously, we've begun to fill out some of the meaning that the gospel of Jesus Christ had for Paul. Let me close with this. Earlier, I said that Paul, in his traditional letters, would build up a theological case. He sort of tried to outflank his readers so that by the time he comes to addressing particular issues directly, his readers are already there with him. But I wonder if Paul has accomplished the same thing in this letter, but by a different route. Imagine a symphony which starts out with many discordant notes uh, and the listener experiences disharmony as the notes separate at irregular intervals. The discord in the music creates tension, and, and the more the discordant the music becomes, the more the listener just longs for the tension to be released, for the chaos to be resolved. But that tension is only released when the music becomes harmonious or more consonant. Now, not all music makes use of discord in this way. But I wonder if Paul is writing a symphony or, or rather a letter like that 
maximizing the sense of discord so that his readers and his listeners, because of course these letters would have been read out loud. And can you, be, can you imagine being the one who had to read this letter out loud to the congregation? I think I would, personally, I think I would choke up partway through. I might have to pass it on to the next person. Your turn. I just can't read anymore. But I wonder if Paul is writing that kind of symphony, which plays those discordant notes over and over, heightening the tension, creating those irregular intervals throughout, so that by the end of the letter, his readers are with him, longing for the tension to be released, for the chaos to be resolved, for the harmony to be restored to their relationships in a way that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do.